Hello, my name is James McDermott. I'm a writer, teacher and 26-year-old cisgendered man. As a gay man, I love men, but as a gay man, I dislike men too. As a camp man who talks and writes about his feelings, I have always questioned stereotypical masculine ideals. As stereotypical men aren't camp, don't talk about their feelings and certainly don't create plays and poems about them. As a 26-year-old, I feel I've learned and unlearned lots about being a man, but at 26, still have lots to learn and unlearn about being my own kind of man. In this podcast series, I will talk with several people to explore masculinity, try and work out why we love and hate men, whether there are such things as masculine ideals, how creativity can help men explore and express themselves, and what men still have to learn and unlearn about being their own kind of man. In this episode, I'm joined by Charlie Kane. Charlie, thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me here. So as a way of introducing you to the listeners, can I ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself and what made you want to come on to the podcast today? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So um, I'm Charlie. And um, I'm, I mean, I think the main thing is I'm a trans man, um, a trans gay man, which I think kind of gives me another little, uh, another direction for looking at things. And I think I see lots of discussion around masculinity um, and I also see lots of discussion around trans identities, but trans men often get left out of both of those conversations. And when it comes to the conversation on masculinity and on gender, I think we in general have a really, really interesting perspective to give on that. And so I really like to be able to give that point from my perspective, from how I've seen it. Fab, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have you here. And I know we've had lots of chats about, uh, outside of this podcast, about that notion of trans representation and misrepresentation uh, of LGBTQ people. Before we start talking about the questions I'd normally ask everyone else, can I ask you uh, just to share any thoughts you have on that at the moment? Where is your feeling about that misrepresentation? And um, Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the media is... is particularly appalling at the moment um I'd, and i'd say sort of the the factual media so i think making a distinction there you know um our news and particularly from a uk perspective um has really really misrepresented trans identities um just taking like one small story as an example from this week um what an an mp uh retweeted uh this charity's cancer charity that told people with a cervix to get screenings and she was angry that it used inclusive language um, because of course people with a cervix allows that trans men who haven't yet had or are choosing not to have lower surgery are also included within that umbrella. Now the reason I pick up on this is because a lot of the transphobes are thinking ah we want this inclusive language because trans women feel upset by it you know all their transphobia is actually trans misogyny it's directed towards trans women and trans men are kind of forgotten about as even existing um and i think it's partly because we blow apart a lot of the stereotypes that they are uh, that the media is trying to uh, perpetrate and i mean this goes across all media platforms you have 
uh, BBC News having people like Graham Linehan on to call um, medical care for trans children uh, to compare it to Nazi experimentation. Um, you have The Guardian continually writing editorials and pieces which are so transphobic that even the US Guardian had to call them out for this. And then this goes across to the Sunday Times, which does transphobic articles every week um, and every other right wing newspaper. We've even had it in right to the far left in the morning star, you know, so like across the, the spectrum of media, that representation is really, really bad. One thing I would say is I think it's getting better in fictional media. Um, and I think we're getting a lot more characters who are better rounded. Um, it's starting to become a lot less that trans people are the butt of every single joke. Um, and they're also being represented more by trans actors. So I think there's this real kind of two um, double edged sword here where fictional media is kind of on a rise and is getting far better at its representation. But factual media, certainly in the UK, is actually pretty low. It's right down in the sewer. I think across the board with so many representations of be that LGBTQ people or black people, female identifying people, it's always that sense of culturally it feels incredibly positive and it, at the vanguard of representation. And then you get the newspapers, politicians, people axing rights. Always feels like it's a rebellion against that. There's incredible cultural progression, but incredible political regression in contrast. And it feels like we're always in that constant state of push and pull with any sense of progress. Yeah. Is there anyone working at the minute who writes about trans lives in a way that feels incredibly authentic and positive to you that listeners can go and read or watch or access should they want to learn more about the trans experience? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a fair few people. There's um, Julia Serrano is very good. I'm sorry, I don't know the name of her book offhand, um, but she's someone I'd highly recommend. Um, if you are interested in sort of, actually a lot of them write from a left-wing perspective, but people like Sean Fay, she's done some great pieces on how class and gender identity are really intertwined. Um and Monroe Bergdorf is another really, really great um, trans figure. Um, but I think there's, you know, there's lots of different things out there. Um, I, again, I'm very conscious of the fact that I just named three trans women. And offhand, I can't think of any trans men who really have that platform and who are talking about gender and identity and being given the platform to do that. Um, that I can recommend. I'm sure I will remember some later, but that kind of speaks into what I've been talking about since the start, is that trans men's voices in this are kind of absent. Hearing you say that, uh, I'm kind of struck instantly by that notion that lots of people who control the media are stereotypical male figures. Do you think there is that sense of they're consciously not facilitating a platform for trans men because that very notion of a trans man might be contrary to so many of the things they perpetuate about masculinity. Yeah, 100%. I think it helps them to talk about trans women because, I mean, if you think about the ways anyway, the media kind of demonises women, you know, often we talk about transphobia. Actually, what we're really seeing is trans misogyny. You know, we're seeing this thing aimed mostly at trans women and based in these very kind of misogynist um, ideas of 
what women should be and how they should behave and how they should look and what their function is. That's a really easy scare figure to represent, you know, the man in the dress um, and about how the newspapers are sharing these scare stories of, you know, men creeping into women's toilets and women's changing rooms in order to abuse them. And so they love perpetrating those. But I think the idea of trans men is quite scary because it kind of it goes against all the stereotypes that they want to perpetrate. And like you said, I think, you know, it, it's it shakes up the view of masculinity, of what it means to be a man. Um, and I think as well as the conscious doing of it, I think there is a lot of unconscious. I think there are people that genuinely do not understand that trans men exist. Absolutely. Uh, so what I would like to do now then is ask you questions that we've asked in uh, other episodes of the podcast, but I'm very, very aware in uh, talking about uh, childhood and teenage time that could be triggering or traumatic. Um, so please, if there's anything you want to pass on, that's absolutely fine. Uh, okay. But the first question I've asked people is uh, their relationship with gender around six years old. Were you aware of gender? Were you aware of what it means to be a man or a woman? Or were you just being and weren't aware of those constructs yet? Uh, yeah, I was I was definitely very, very aware of them. And I think um, this is um, something that um, I think this is where trans people's uh, perspective on gender becomes really interesting, because for a lot of us, we have been thinking about the concepts of what it really means to be a man or a woman or whatever. Um, since our earliest memories. And that was certainly the case for me. So I can say for myself at the age of six, I knew that I was a boy. And that was just a fact. That was just something I knew. And I figured something must have gone wrong somewhere. I had an internal identity. I don't know where that internal identity came from. I don't know what it was, but I just knew that that was me. That was my internal identity. In the society in which I grew up in, boys had short hair, so I wanted short hair. And boys wore certain clothes, so I wanted those clothes. And boys played with certain toys, so I wanted to play with those certain toys. Because I was very clear that I wanted to put a thing out to the world that I was a boy. I, that was my, I suppose that was my gender performativity. You know, that was me saying to the world, this is who I am and this is how I want to be treated. If I'd grown up in a society where boys were expected to have long hair, I would have wanted to have long hair. If I was grow, grown up in a society where boys were expected to wear you know, skirts, I would have wanted to wear skirts. Um, and so and all those different kind of stereotypes. And I'm sure there would have been some masculine stereotypes I was still um, predisposed to and some feminine I was still predisposed to. But most of it was about what I wanted to put out to the world and how that reflected my internal identity. From my earliest memory, um, I was doing this. Yeah. Yeah. I think the only thing I can empathise with in that notion of knowing is that sense as a gay man as well, I think I knew around that time. And uh, I didn't know what it was, but I could point to it in the culture. And I could point to it in a soap opera, just as you said you could in Jerry Springer, and said, okay, this person, I can't articulate what this thing is, but he embodied it. And it's making me blush when I see that, even though I don't know what I'm blushing at. Uh, so I think there is that sense. Kids kind of can't uh, necessarily articulate something, but they can point to the cultural lamp, like houses, if you like, uh, that embody that thing. 
if you don't mind me asking, did you have any sense you were attracted to uh, men at that stage as well? A sense of queer yeah. gayness emerging. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I absolutely did. Um, and I would say a similar thing. I could sort of um, remember kind of a young age feeling there were certain men that I liked spending time around and I wasn't sure why, but, you know, I definitely liked being in their presence. And quite, it's, it's funnily enough, um, there's a few um, men in my life now, not, not that many, but I'd say there's two or three who I knew when I was a kid, who I still know now, who are gay men and who I had that um, sort of attraction to. And so kind of looking back on that now, I realised that, oh, there was that part of me that was recognising another gay man, you know, and recognising that this was part of my identity and we had something shared. So if you don't mind me asking these questions again, because I'm aware as we get into teenagers, that can get even more triggering as you become more conscious of certain elements of yourself. So by all means, uh, refuse to answer any of these questions if uh, you wish to. That's absolutely fine. But that sense of how would your relationship with uh, your masculinity and your uh, attraction to male identifying people changed within, uh, say, 10 years between being six and being 16? How would things change over that course of puberty? Um, so hugely. So you're right. Puberty was a big, big trigger. And it's it's actually re- it's difficult to talk about in the sense not that I mean, there, there are certainly certain things that I would find very triggering to still even talk about now. But um, what and again, this is an experience I've heard other trans people say they have. I can't say it's a universal experience, but I know it's one that's not just mine. And that is that a lot of my teenage years is a blank. Like there are things I just simply cannot tell you about my teenage years because I sort of disassociated myself from them. There's definitely a trauma associated with that. And that trauma was, I think, very much a physical trauma, very much when you get to the age of puberty and your body is changing and it is not changing in the way that for you it should be changing. That's real kind of physical trauma. Um, and of course, when you're, you know, before you get to the age of puberty, there's really not that much, well, there's really not any differences, you know, any physical differences other than very, very minor ones between boys and girls. Um, then suddenly at puberty, all those kinds of changes happen. So those, so the, the things that were things about my body, obviously, were changing in the wrong direction and making it very obvious that I wasn't, or not that I wasn't, but that my body didn't want to show, you know, who I was inside. Um, and so that was, that was really, really traumatic for me going through that experience. Um, certainly internally, my identity never changed. And I know a lot of people go through a period of trying to um, swallow it back, trying to um and again the same thing with sexuality you know people will um not um try and hide their sexuality even from themselves um i don't think i ever really went through that i think i always knew who i was and always knew that at some point i would need to transition um i kind of wish i'd known that i could have told people when i was 11 and i might have got puberty blockers then um but i i wasn't aware of that um but um so i was aware that these uh, these changes that were kind of wrong 
for me were happening. Um, and I, I sort of cut myself off. Um, I had, I still, I, th- I think the one thing I had and the one thing that kind of got me through all of it was drama, was the theatre. Um, and so I spent most of the time, if I wasn't at school, in my bedroom. And it really, it really affected every area of my life. Um, I went from being an academic high achiever to kind of you know, barely scraping by. Um, I went from being outgoing to being a real introvert with absolutely no um, friends to speak of, you know, just because I just didn't want people to be in my company. Um, but the theatre was the place where number one I could be someone else I could take and of course because there are always more girls than boys in theatre groups there were always more boys parts than there were cisgender boys so I was always going to get one of those um so for a moment on stage I could be that person who I was um and so that was something that was really really dear to me Thank you so much for sharing that story with me. I think uh, so much I empathise with in that sense of those teenage years being a bit of a blank. I've never heard that articulated so elegantly and eloquently before, that sense of just so much of it, because you do feel traumatised by gender sexuality, your internal world not matching uh, how you want to express yourself in the outer world. It does. You do close down. And my goodness, do I empathise as well with that sense of becoming quite reclusive, but drama being that place where you can embrace the that the performativity of identity and just try on different people. I think that's something that I really love doing with drama. Yes, totally. And of course, I, the, the boys involved in drama tended to be the... I mean, not, necess- not necessarily all of them gay, um, but they did... I mean, obviously, if you... If, if your um, uh, connection is to theatre, it's something which um, requires, I think, a lot of empathy. Um, yeah. you, that, that's what acting is to me, I think. It's, it's kind of having empathy with another situation. Um, and so often it's people who are less traditionally necessarily ma- masculine, certainly less full of toxic masculinity. Um, mm. And so you're surrounded by people who also have questions about their identity and who also are maybe slightly softer, um, which was kind of what I needed. I mean, the one thing I would say about that, though, was that it, I felt that that, that um, environment was, as far as it goes, um, as far as it can be for kids or as far as it could be for kids and teenagers at that time, a really nice environment to be able to come out as gay, to be able to have a yeah. support network, to be able to have um, people around you who understood you and accepted you. But for me, I didn't feel that. I didn't feel that I could have that. Um, I don't think it was the fault of the people around. You know, I, I think they just, you know, even less was known then about my identity than is now. So even within that environment, where I felt very much at home the (coughs) excuse me I was still outside it and so that's why I'd say there were only two places where I was really really at home number one was on the stage acting um being someone else and the number two was playing the piano 
Um, and I think that's, you know, I think it's interesting how much probably my identity is tied to what I eventually went into, you know, being a, a theatre musician, being a composer, lyricist for the theatre, a musical director for the theatre. That, I think, all happened because of my identity, because those two things mixed were the escape. Yeah. They were the two things I could have. I completely empathise with that as well, that sense of acting and writing being a way of escaping into yourself to understand yourself but also escaping out of yourself and becoming other people and just because as you said that idea of identity and career fusing almost accidentally I think I don't think I chose to be a writer and I know through chatting to you as well previously that sense of you don't consciously think I'm going to be a musician it just becomes that kind of lifeline if you like Mm. and suddenly you're doing it for work yeah yeah absolutely I was really struck as well by what you said about uh, kind of drama groups and theatres being kind of places of empathy and it, for lots of uh, kind of straight identifying uh, cis male identifying men I know it's that sense of when they go to drama when they're younger it's a place where they can talk about feelings and plays are people solving problems through conversation it's a place they can talk but it's a place where in ironically in performing they stop having to perform being a man in the world for a little bit and they can explore feelings and chat about other things than that kind of man script that they think they have to follow in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And this is certainly something that I noticed um, being around those those spaces growing up. Um, you know, it was a place, it, interestingly, where I suppose that the only place in, if you wanted to perform that masculinity, that vision of, of uh, the way we think of, of men, um, the it wouldn't have gone down that well there. You know, it's like when you're out in the world with your mates outside of theatre. And I could quite imagine that there are quite a few people who have these different kind of performances they go through with these different Mm -hmm. groups of people. Obviously, we all do. We all did. Um, But in that space, actually, like you say, it was encouraged to um, you you talk through things, you learn, you grow that way. And I think, as I've said, you know, I think that when you're, when you're creating a character, you're having to use empathy. You're having to um, mm. get in someone else's skin and really see the world from their perspective. And that perspective can be completely different from your yeah. own. And I think all those things kind of just foster a better, gentler <laughs> um, person. Um, and certainly, the you know, I never felt when I was in those spaces, when I was around straight cisgender men that were there that that there was that threat of masculinity that you can get you know certainly as a gay man at times when you're around a bunch of straight kind of lads types certainly that was never the case and they were all much much more open and much more gentle than um boys and men I'd met in other areas and I think that was great I think that gave me you know what, what I think is so great about this kind of stuff is of course for me, you know, and for trans men, I think there is there is a thing that you can take on toxic masculinity. You know, you want to prove your yeah. manhood so much that you can take on those things um, worse than other people. And I know that there have been times in my life where I've taken on misogynist viewpoints um, and certainly not anymore. But if I look back and think over things, I think, oh, I know why I was doing that. I was really trying to prove Hearing you say that and what you said at the beginning of the podcast about misrepresentation, uh, it feels very, very 
timely in a negative sense that kind of so much arts funding and the fact theatres aren't being saved during the pandemic as much as they should be, that feels kind of horribly synonymous with that idea of misrepresentation and the rise of a far-right politics that's emerging at the minute. That sense of let's stop places of empathy existing and let's stop people imagining what it's like to be someone they're not. It feels very, very linked to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think um, I have noticed... so. Um, there's a project I'm just researching at the moment, which is about uh, far right radicalization. It's very much in the early stages, so I'm just doing some research on it. Mm. Is that the people who are getting radicalized are young white men who feel completely cut off? Um, often it's people who have gone, gone through some sort of trauma or abuse in their childhood. Not always, but often that's a part of it, um, and they've. They feel like there is no place for them in the world. And I think that is definitely tied to masculinity. Um, yeah. And I think because because they're not allowed to be vulnerable. So mm. I certainly think it all, if not, if it's not a major thing and if it's not a deliberate thing, it certainly all adds to this big melting pot of isolation that people are in. Yeah. And that was beautifully articulated. Uh, it just chimes with kind of one of my pet obsessions in lockdown has been just watching everything unfold uh, with mm. this notion that as as men believe, a certain type of man believes that fallacy that equality is making them smaller and smaller. They've tried to get bigger and bigger, either physically at the gym for several years or culturally by being more and more extreme. And it feels just lots of the uh, kind of anti-Black Lives Matter marches field they just felt like a march of masculinity really it was a certain type of man expressing himself in a certain type of way uh, how dare you make us small and it mm. feels like that's really really talking to how uh those extremist far-right groups are recruiting people who kind of a certain type of man who feels small societally or disenfranchised for whatever reason and it's exploiting that idea of we can make you bigger we can make you that stereotypical man who is strong and big and intimidating oh yeah, absolutely. That that is it's 100% it. And, you know, we can give you a space where, you know, you can be proud of your identity. And, you know, you're not allowed to feel proud of your culture. You're not allowed to feel pr- proud of um, of who you are, um, where, whereas all these other people are. <laughs> um, but it's, it's taught like we've got it great. Like, uh, you know, they're, they're taught they, they get a flag and they get a march. And isn't that wonderful? Which <laughs> it's, it's lovely having a flag and a march, but I wish it wasn't, you know, on the back of so many years of oppression. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not worth it and, for a flag, is it? No, it's not. It really isn't. And, you know, so they they feel like their identity is under threat. And here's this group of people mm. who are saying, come here, you know, here you can be yourself and you can um and, and you have a fact you have a community you know it's and it's all on, online most of the radicalization is happening online you have this community what is really really appalling about it is that what happens is actually no you don't have a community you you are what what they do to people is is they cut them off from their communities you yeah. know these these people get cut off from their communities as they get more and more desensitized to mainly racist although a lot of it is gender-based as well racist and sexist language and they get told that the cause of all their problems is you know woke 
culture, SJWs, all these kind of buzzwords. Um, and but there's nowhere to go. So these these people are wound up. They're made angrier and angrier, and that anger has nowhere to go. And that that is something that's really quite concerning because there is only. There are only two ways that can end. It can either end by a person getting out of that situation, which I think only really happens if you've got some sort of social net um, network to to go on, you know, to, to get you out. Another yeah. a group of friends that you can go and be with, or it, it ends in violence, you know, and that violence is either directed towards them, it's suicide, or it's directed towards other people. Um, and yeah. you know, multiple school shootings and bombings have all been by these these men who have been radicalised online and given nowhere to go with all their anger. I was really struck by that sense of what you said a moment ago about uh, their, that, however much we were jesting about it, that notion of a flag and a march and community. Uh, so many people who are oppressed by that notion of patriarchy and toxic masculinity and racism, they build their own communities. And I think there's a real sense, certainly from uh, cisgendered male friends of mine who I've fallen out with in the past because they've got very, very angry about certain things. It feels like they envy community and they feel really individual and disenfranchised and always say there isn't a man community. And I think they really envy our sense of solidarity that we have with people um, similar to us. Yeah, 100%. Um, and, uh, you know, and I can, from an outside perspective, I can get that. I can, you know, I can get how if I was looking at this from the outside and thinking, you know, I want that community because it is yeah. it is a lovely community to have, you know, and I'm very I'm very glad to have it. Um, and you know, I wouldn't want to be a straight cisgender man because my <laughs> my perspective of the world, you know, has been so um, inspired by number one, being queer, being LGBT uh, plus. And number two, by having that community and by having those those people yeah. and, and that sense of history and, you know, the same purpose um, all kind of tied into one. So, yeah, 100 percent. I, I, I really do think that is the case. And I, I think they feel we're being told we're not allowed that. Of course, that's not yeah. <laughs> what anyone is saying, but I think they they are. I think they're just missing that sense of community. Um, I, I think a lot of them are anyway. Yeah, absolutely beautifully expressed. Thank you. Uh, so jumping back onto uh, this notion of our relationship with age and gender. So can I ask about uh, how your relationship with gender and sexuality and queerness have changed kind of leaving 16 and puberty behind and becoming an adult, say 26, which is where I'm at now. Uh, as I said, part of the reason I wanted to make the show was to uh, learn from people a little further along the road than me, masculinity, about uh, what I've still got to unlearn and learn about being a man mm. at 26. So how would your relationship change with uh, identity and sexuality oh. at that point? Gosh. So um, I would... It's changed hugely. Uh, I'd say that sort of uh, is the sort of biggest arc. And I think that arc is still continuing. I, I mean, I, I'm sure it does continue throughout our lives and will, and that's great. <laughs> Um, you know, that I haven't arrived <laughs> at where I want to be um, or who I am. But um, it's, uh, I've certainly gone through huge changes in that time. And I think um, one thing that I think interestingly, so there's various points I'd like to make here. So one thing I think that's interesting with trans people's identities, and again, 
this is something that I've spoken to other trans men about. And I found that it's not necessarily a shared experience with everyone, but a share, but certainly a shared experience. And that is before you have like physically transitioned in inverted commas, um, so much emphasis um, is on what what is called passing. I happen to hate that term um, because it, it makes it's, it's like the term straight acting. You know, it makes it seem like being cisgender and being seen as cisgender is superior and being straight and being seen as straight is superior. But that's the term we use, passing. Yeah. Mm. And so, so much is tied into masculinity with that. You know, people will make judgments, make quick judgments on gender. And they're not just based on, and they're also conscious, they're not just based on, you know, your haircut, your voice, your face. Obviously they are, but they're also based on the way you look, um, the way you, sorry, the way you sit, the way you express yourself, the way you use your voice, you know, not just whether it's deep or high, um, but how much expression you put in it. The way all these different things um, tie into how people view gender. And so for a long time, I certainly wouldn't say I was gender, trying to be gender stereotypical for a man um, because and I think being a gay man helped me to not feel like I had to fit into that particular box. But I, yeah. but I certainly think there were, you know, I was there was a mask of masculinity that wasn't me that I was putting on. And when you actually transition and when those, you know, when you're not in danger of being misgendered anymore or, or misrepresented, it allows you this freedom with your femininity. And so, you know, for me, becoming a man and becoming really physically obvious a man has really enabled me to explore my kind of campness more. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm like horrendously feminine, horrendously, I wouldn't say I'm hugely feminine. <laughs> But certainly kind of like, so I've really, really over the years have got more and more camp, which I love. Um, yeah. <laughs> also, I think tied into trans identity, interestingly for me, my whole way of looking at that has changed over my life. Um, and certainly in recent years, um, in, the, in the past, I'd say sort of five years. And the reason, what I'd say about that is, for such a long time, the way I thought about it was, this is a medical issue. This is something that I need to fix. And once I fixed it, I can then go on and live my life. Um, and I did for a long time live my life stealth. So that meant I just didn't tell anyone that I was trans. Obviously, people from my background, people from my childhood and growing up knew, but anyone else mm. didn't. And I transitioned very young. I transitioned sort of at 18. So, um, you know, I could quite easily have that new life. But then it started to become an identity for me. And that's what really interesting, you know, like that that part of me became an identity and an identity tied to my manhood. And I think that, I think what made that identity happen was oppression it was becoming politically awakened to what was happening and to realize and i think that is that you know when you think of these identities you we've talked about this already with kind of you know white 
cisgender straight men feeling like they don't have community. Actually, those identities around sexuality and gender identity are based in oppression. You know, if there was no oppression of gay people, we wouldn't need gay pride. We wouldn't need that kind of identity. Um, and so that was how I really started to become kind of more of an activist on this stuff. And I yeah. started to just be open about it. And that was a really, really big thing for me because I think, you know, you grew up, I spoke right at the beginning about seeing things like Jerry Springer and seeing, you know, seeing the way the people on that were treated. And if you, I mean, it is very difficult to watch certainly a British comedy series without at some point in that series being trans, being the butt of the joke. And that is literally it. You know, I don't mean a joke about trans people. I mean, this person is trans. Ha ha ha. You know, so that was what I grew up with. That was the internalization I got. And I have over the past few years. And I think it's only really since I accepted this as an identity and not as kind of like a medical thing that I just had to go through. I have been unpicking that because that shame gets to you, you know, and you can know in your head that it's not true. But in your heart, you can it's still there. Um, and I think I'm still going through that process, but I've certainly gone through it a lot. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm picking that and just being able to be proud of my identity and certainly not think it's something that I need to hide and understand that actually it's something that has given me a perspective on the world that very, very few people actually get to have, you know, a much wider, a much wow. more colourful perspective of the world. Um, so I'd say that's one of the kind of biggest changes for me and so that all those kind of identities are tied together in that and, and I don't want to you know take away from the pain that people go through obviously but you know you have been given this this is this is something that you're that other people won't get to see you know other people won't understand gender in the way that I do because by my very nature of being who I am I've thought about what it means to be a man from my very earliest memory because the expectation once you've accepted yourself and I think that's the the major point of difference if you haven't accepted yourself the expectation is to behave to be a certain way to do certain things to crush all your internal feelings down into a small little ball and try and ignore them whereas if you get past that and accept yourself and accept and love yeah. that part of you you know, yeah. then then it opens doors and then it opens your perspective. And as writers and as theatre creators, that is also valuable. I think that's so beautifully expressed. And I, just like you kind of st still think I'm working through that shame about queerness and campness and gayness. Mm. So can I ask you one question I've asked? I think I forget to ask this sometimes on the other podcast, but I think it's a really lovely question. Just if you could go back and talk to your 26-year-old self, Kind of where I'm at now in that sense of the big kind of objective behind making this was obviously to help other people understand masculinity but I think selfishly it's that sense of I feel like I'm still very childlike in positive and negative ways and I'm still unlearning things and relearning things do you have any advice for a 26 year old person about their relationship oh. with gender sexuality what do you wish you'd known at 26 I suppose is the question oh gosh I mean I think that this is going to sound really 
Ponzi probably, but I think I wish I'd known mm. more about um, intersectionality um, and more about how all our identities are such a huge mix. Um, so, like, for example, when we talk about um, toxic masculinity or, or anything, when we talk about gender, when we talk about, let's say, a woman's experience, you know, these kind of binaries always really annoy me. Um, when we talk about, you know, the, like, so, for example, female or male socialisation or female or male experience or whatever that is, not just because it's reductive and binary in gender terms, but because it's binary um in in it, it just gives such a bad understanding of the world and and it's it centers mm. what it centers is white cisgender heterosexual probably middle class but certainly those three it centers those three things you know so if you say to someone okay if someone's very stuck in that that's thinking okay what would you say a woman's experience is they will give you a white heterosexual cisgender woman's experience yeah and i feel like there's so many kind of smaller, you know, so many different ways in which gender and race and class and sexuality and gender identity all intersect and make these really, you know, really intricate, both personal and communal experiences. Um, and I think just by, I just think I wish I'd just been more aware of that complexity of the work. Because for me, it then, I think it enables you to go when someone, you know, and particularly as a queer person, if you're being told by the world, you're not man enough, you're not masculine enough, say, you know, as a gay man, you're being told you're not man enough, you're not masculine enough. You can, if you can immediately recognise that what these people are saying is you are not the ideal of a white, straight cisgender man that we have you can just see immediately how it is so mixed up in racism and how it is yeah. so mixed up in classism and how it is just so reductive um and just kind of like trusting in the complex just understanding the complexities i think that is something that i really that in recent years i've really really come to understand and i would have loved to have got to earlier i think that's amazing advice i think this has been one of my favorite conversations i've ever had with anybody i think it's just oh, no, so nourishing you. and just so timely i think it's just one of those things selfishly again uh just it just feels so apt with everything i've been thinking about and time working through in my own uh, identity so thank you so much for your time and your candor uh, this morning no worries it's been great thank you very much a pleasure charlie kane thank you so much Thank you for listening. This has been Mantor, the Masculinity Conversations, brought to you by me, James McDermott, and Story Machine Productions, with music by Jordan Mallory Skinner and produced by Sam Ruddock. We're keen to talk to anyone who wants to share their experience of masculinity. If you would like to be featured in a forthcoming episode, drop us a line at storymachineproductions at gmail.com.